Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. There's an extent to which this budget is politically tone deaf. The Chancellor's playing lots of political games here. I thought the measures were in total a bit meh, really. Is that a technical term, business columnist? (laughs) Yeah, meh. (laughs) I think there were genuine cuts, but there was quite a lot of robbing Peter to pay Paul and smoke and mirrors. It just felt a bit to me like the fiscal equivalent of your dad turning down the thermostat and telling you to wear an extra jumper. Put a hat on. Put a hat on, Ben Wright. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily, Alison Pearson. But today, Alison's replaced with the Telegraph's business columnist, Ben Wright. That's because this is a Sunak Spring Statement special. We've just listened to the Spring Statement. It's been billed as a mini budget. But I think it's the most important financial speech the House of Commons has heard since the 2008 financial crisis. The UK is, of course, in the midst of a cost of living squeeze. Inflation in February ahead of this Russia-Ukraine conflict was up at 6.2%, a 30-year high. But Western sanctions and Moscow's countermeasures have sent global oil, gas and commodity markets into orbit with the price of fuel and food spiralling, adding to that cost of living squeeze. In this spring statement, Sunak sought to help cash-strapped households but he was at pains to suggest he could only work within the realms of the affordability. There are limits to government borrowing, he argued, that are starting to bite. So this is a special Spring Statement edition. Ben Wright, welcome aboard the rocket. We're delighted to have you with us today. What are your thoughts? Pleasure to be here, Liam. So I thought it was a very important speech, or the backdrop to, to the speech was very important. I thought the measures that Sunak announced were in total a bit Meh, really. Is that a technical term, business columnist? (laughs) Yeah, meh. You mentioned inflation. Those figures came out this morning, 6.2% in February. That's before the energy cap rises and national insurance, higher national insurance contributions kick in in April. And the OBR is is now saying inflation could peak at 9% and averaged 7.4% over the rest of the year. That's the Office for Budget Responsibility, isn't it? The independent state forecasting body, if you like, that the Treasury uh, has to take notice of. Exactly, the fiscal watchdog. And what they said, I mean, as you know for well, Liam, sometimes the headlines of these days don't come out of the speech, they come out of what the OBR produces. And I, I think that's the case today. The OBR said that over the next 12 months, households' disposable income will fall at the fastest rate since records began, and they go back to the 1950s. So that, the biggest hit to the quality of living that British households will have felt since the 1950s, which is quite a big gulp moment, I think. I think you're right to align immediately on the OBR 
forecast changes, Ben. The Chancellor said when he stood up, there's an unusually high uncertainty around the economic outlook. And the OBR has lowered its growth forecast for 2022 from 6%. That was the forecast it gave back in October 2021 at the time of the Chancellor's budget, from 6% to 3.8%, which is a huge downgrade. Of course, lower growth means less tax revenue. It means more spending on benefits, hemming the Chancellor in, and then that big increase in inflation, as you say. But the other number that really jumped out at me, and we won't talk about numbers all the time, but I think it's important to set the context, as you say, is £83 billion, £83,000 million. Hmm. What is that? That is the amount of money the government is estimating it will spend on debt interest, servicing the government's debt in the coming fiscal year from April 22 to April 23. That's far, far more than we spend, of course, on schools. It's far, far more than we spend on defence yeah, it's twice the defence budget. Yeah, unbelievable. And that is literally on money servicing government debt, money down the drain, as your mum might say. You know, it's paying someone else's mortgages rather than buying your own house. Yeah. And not to get too technical, Liam, but usually inflation is seen as a good thing for government finances because it inflates away the government debt. The amount that they owe in the future is worth less in today's money terms because of inflation. But the issue with UK government debt is a lot of it is inflation linked. So the interest payments are linked to inflation. And they're linked to RPI inflation, aren't they? Yeah. Which is higher than CPI Which is even higher, inflation. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems to be the, the real misstep in, in the government finances. I mean, we obviously need to borrow, but why did we borrow so much that was inflation linked? I think that's right. And that's £83 billion debt service cost in the coming fiscal year. It's four times up on the current fiscal year, I was really surprised by that number. And it suggests to me that the Chancellor, the Treasury, the OPR think there are going to be many more interest rate rises coming down the track. The other big thing to say, I think, is that Sunak did go through with that national insurance contribution increase. Mm -hmm. That's been on the slate for many months. It's been legislated for. He went through with that 1.25 percentage point rise in contributions for employers and employees. That costs basic rate taxpayers the best part of 200 quid a year and higher rate taxpayers on average over £700 a year. So he went through with that, what is a tax increase, but then at the same time he implemented some tax cuts, didn't he? Did you think they were genuine cuts? Yeah, I mean, I think they were genuine cuts so that, you know, it's a pretty chunky hit. But there was quite a lot of robbing Peter to pay Paul. And, and smoke and mirrors. So in terms of the national insurance contributions, as you say, they're going up 1.25% in April. But he has increased the threshold by quite a lot. So earners will start paying national insurance contributions at £12,570, which is £3,000 higher than it was before and been aligned with the same threshold for income tax. And that had been sort of trailed, but there had been talk about raising the threshold as a sort of halfway house from a full U-turn from the contributions increase. And the government's own figures say that that means that 70% of earners, the increase will be offset for them by the, the higher threshold. But that in and of itself kind of shows that he sort of raised a tax in order to be able to cut a tax. And then with income tax, 
shaving a penny off the pound, which is no mean feat. Income tax is very rarely cut. And as he pointed out, it's only been cut twice in the last 20 years. But this cut will be at the end of this parliament, so 2024. And it's worth pointing out that it's outweighed by the fact that he's already frozen income tax thresholds, more than outweighed. So yes, he cut some taxes and, you know, sizable cuts, but they're more than offset by either tax rises or stealth taxes elsewhere. And overall, it's worth pointing out that the tax burden is still rising. So he's presenting himself as a tax-cutting chancellor, but the tax burden is currently 35.5% of GDP. That's already, as we know, the highest proportion since the Second World War. But it's going to rise, carry on rising. It's going to be 36.3% in the 26-27 financial year. So he's sort of presented himself as a tax cutter, but the tax burden continues to rise. You know, I think there's an extent to which this budget is politically tone deaf. (laughs) The Chancellor's playing lots of political games here, as you say, Ben. The reason I asked you if you think these tax rises are real is we don't really know if that basic rate of income tax cut from 20 to 19p in the pound, as you say, by 2024 is actually going to happen. The Chancellor said at the dispatch box, oh, the OBR has costed it and it all works out with my numbers. But he also said there's an unusually high degree of uncertainty about the economic outlook. So who Mm. knows what's going to be happening in 2023, 2024, even the rest of 2022. Europe's at war. The oil and gas markets globally are bouncing around like crazy, like we haven't seen since the 1970s. And that's why I think there's a lot of sophistry in this. And I think the Chancellor's been too... Clever, clever by half. As you say, he's cutting the base rate of income tax to throw a bone to his own conservative backbenchers. Meanwhile, more and more people are being dragged into higher tax bans by inflation. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, the cost of living crisis is raging and he's cut fuel duty on petrol and diesel by 5p per litre. Great. You, sp- you save £3.30 when you fill up a 55-litre car. And rather than helping households with their utility bills, and we know that the off-gem price cap is going up in April from around £1,300 to almost £2,000, that's the average bill for households, and and then we know it's going to go up again before the autumn because wholesale energy prices have obviously spiralled since the Russia-Ukraine conflict began in earnest. Rather than helping households with those fuel bills, he said, oh, if you get some solar panels or a heat yes. pump or insulation, it will be zero rated. Well, that's nice if you're sort of, you know, middle class person who lives in the countryside. But if you're trying to pay for your fuel bills on a modest income or worse, if you're on benefits, then there was nothing in this spring statement for you at all. And that's why I think a lot of the Chancellor's previous image making around his hundred pound shoes and his cashmere sweaters and so on. I think it's going to start to look pretty bad in the weeks to come as the cost of living squeeze really bites. I think you're right. Those sort of measures that were directly targeted, supposedly, at helping with the cost of living crisis, 5p off a litre of fuel, you know, every little helps. So thank you. But it is not very much. I mean, there are two uh, petrol stations close to me, and the difference in the price there is 5p. And The prices have gone up 50p since the start of the pandemic. He's just taking 10% off that rise. And then to your point about the solar panels, I mean, yes, VAT coming off that, and uh, that's good. 
But there are not people rushing out, I suspect, at the moment to buy solar panels. Not many people have the disposable income to do that. And again, abolishing VAT on home insulation, it just felt a bit to me like the fiscal equivalent of your dad turning down the thermostat and telling you to wear an extra jumper. Put a hat on. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I agree with all that. On my GB News show, I spoke to Helen Barnard, who you may know. She's the extremely well-respected analyst at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which is, of course, one of our most distinguished charities that has conducted for many years research into poverty in the UK and policies to help our most vulnerable families. And Helen is not the kind of person who uses words lightly. She is not a catastrophist in any way. And she said to me, I am genuinely shocked, genuinely shocked at how little the Chancellor has done. And I've had many messages since this spring statement from Red Wall Conservatives. By that, I mean Conservatives who have won in previously Labour strongholds in the North and the Midlands, who disproportionately have lower income and vulnerable families in their constituencies. And they are also wondering how the Chancellor managed to present a spring statement in the middle of the most serious cost of living crisis, at least since the early 80s, and do so little for vulnerable people. There was next to nothing in there for the very lowest income. For starters, they're not going to be driving around in cars. They're certainly not going to be insulating their houses. They're certainly not going to be buying solar panels. And then obviously some of them are not earning and therefore the cutting threshold for national insurance is not going to help them either. And there was nothing on universal credit. And we know benefits are going up 3% in April. And of course, that's set on where inflation was at the end of last year. Exactly. And it really feels like He's sort of been caught out by that and that and that there wasn't anything for the lowest earners. Now, those people may not be conservative voters, but this is a cost of living crisis. And this is this was his chance to lend a helping hand. And it feels like he didn't. May not be conservative voters ordinarily, but many of them, Ben, as you know, millions of them were conservative voters in December yes. 2019 when Boris yeah. won his 80 seat majority off the back of those red wall constituencies. And you're right, I think it's 3.1% benefit upgrade based on the September inflation number. And then you've got the OBR saying, actually, inflation for the next year is going to be 7.4%. So all benefits are just being cut in real terms during a cost of living crisis. Yeah, and it just strikes me that in the 21st century, I mean, this is all on computer systems. You should be able to update it at the touch of a button. Why are we relying on six-month, seven-month-old inflation figures to calculate that increase? If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. (laughs) 
Over the months on Planet Normal, Alison and I have often talked about a sort of coming of winter of discontent. Of course, we spend a lot of time talking about her superb columns, but every now and then we talk about one of mine. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to kill me for that. But I did write a column back in August 2021, which said I predict a winter of discontent coming because I saw a lot of inflation coming and I was looking at financial markets and so on. And indeed, you and I were conversing about that at the time as well. And obviously, I didn't predict the Russia-Ukraine war and the impact of that on energy prices. But of course, the headline inflation numbers we've got at the moment only go up to February. So they didn't include the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And we were already at a 30-year high. But part of the 70s, the decade when I grew up, my interest in politics, economics, current affairs was very much based on that industrial strife that I know you will remember or at least have read about that we saw in the 1970s, lots and lots of strikes. Oh, it's, it's more read about for me, Liam, a little bit younger. <laughs> you had to get that in, didn't you? I'm a bit older than you, but of course. Now, back then, about 50% of the British workforce were in trade unions. And now it's 25%. And much of that 25% is, of course, in the public sector unions. Yeah, But we are seeing a very nasty private sector union battle emerging in terms of uh, the P&O ferry dispute. Yes. And of course, those public sector unions are there, particularly the white collar unions, the teaching unions, the health sector unions, and so on. And when you've got 7.4% inflation, unless you upgrade the public sector pay bill for 5.7 million public sector workers, at least close to 7.4%, you are going to have a lots of industrial action. And it strikes me that without willing this and wanting it to happen, obviously I don't want strife and conflict, but I do see a dogfight between capital and labour, if you like, coming down the tracks, the likes of which we have not seen since the late 70s and the early 80s. I think there's a very good chance of that. Yeah, I mean, as you say, we've been talking about inflation for a while back, and I remember reading that column in August. I'm not an economist. I mostly talk to businesses. But I couldn't understand where the economists were coming from, where the central bankers were coming from when they were talking about inflation being transitory. And it was it was just as a result of supply side problems because of the pandemic and it was all going to pass because I was talking to businesses and they were just every single input cost was going through the roof. Now, you know, some of that, obviously, it falls back. And, you know, if energy prices fall back, that will feed through to inflation. If it's a lot lower in a year's time, if hopefully the Ukraine crisis is resolved and the energy prices fall back, you know, that will have an impact on inflation. It will bring it back down again. But I was talking to a chief executive of a FTSE 100 company the other day, and he said, even the most bearish commentator on inflation is underestimating what is coming down the track. And I said, does that mean higher price rises or the length of time that it will last for? And he simply said, yes, both. (laughs) One of his points which particularly struck me was he was saying that everything, all the input costs, so raw materials, packaging, freight costs, he said, had come back a little bit, but that's, they were still six times normal as opposed to 10 times normal. Everything was going up. And just to make the numbers work on his business, he's going to have to pass on those costs to consumers. But they were so high that he's going to have to do that over two or three years. So if you extrapolate that all up and down the supply chain and through various businesses, it just tells you that these prices are going to carry on rising for months and years to come. But on the flip side, I said, and presumably your staff are asking for pay rises. And he said, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, and will they be getting pay rises that match inflation? No way. So there is clearly 
as you say, that tension between between capital and labour. And I suppose the unions have lost some of their power over the past few decades. But potentially that's because we were living in pretty benign economic conditions. So could it be that the unions regain their power once workers find themselves squeezed as much as we think they're going to be? I think that's exactly right. As you know, I've spent my so-called career sort of wafting between political, economic and business journalism. And I always say to young journalists, people who want to come into the trade, spend time as a business journalist early on in your career because you will know more than anyone else for the rest of your career. You learn where politics is going if you talk to business. You learn where the economy is going if you talk to business. And I remember talking to the chief exec of JCB, Graham MacDonald, back in September. I think I wrote about it in my economic agenda column. And I said to him, Graham, what's the biggest issue facing the British economy? And back then, inflation was like, you know, 3%. He said, inflation, no question. And I'd sort of been writing that. So I was happy to hear somebody running one of the, you know, most classy British companies to say that. But people like Graham McDonald running JCB, people you know who work in construction, people who run farms, you know, they can see inflation coming down the track. They are the economic bellwethers and you can only tap into them if you're writing business columns, frankly, as a journalist. Yeah. And if you look at the inflation numbers that came out the day of the spring statement for February, of course, these predate the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's not let politicians or the governor of the central bank, Andrew Bailey, blame this inflation on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Governor, if you're listening, I know a lot of people in the Bank of England do listen to Planet Normal. You're not going to get away with blaming your misreading of inflation. Mm. Keep saying that it's transitory, calling people like me and others at The Telegraph alarmist for saying that inflation is going to go much higher. Because if you look at the breakdown of those February numbers, Ben, 6.2% CPI headline, 8.2% retail price index, a broader measure used to update most commercial contracts. Within that, the so-called factory gate inflation, the price of goods coming out of factories, up 10.1%. The price of manufacturers' inputs up 14.7% on the year to February. Ben, before that big spike in energy prices as a result of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we are going double-digit inflation. It brings me no pleasure to say that. And I didn't hear any sense of that urgency from Rishi Sunak. And that's why I'm going to predict here and now. We're going to see another statement before Parliament breaks for the summer. We're going to see some kind of emergency cost of living statement before MPs go on their summer holidays. I don't know if you heard, but halfway through his speech, and in fairness, it was before he talked about national insurance and income tax. He was sort of detailing those measures to help the cost of living. And someone on the Labour front bench, I think it was Rachel Reeves, but I'm not sure, shouted, is that it? (laughs) (laughs) And to me, to me, I think that that sums up the statement. I think that's a question a lot of people will be asking themselves after hearing this. Is that it? So if, if you and I were running a tabloid newspaper, Ben, and I'm sure it's only a matter of time after <laughs> this scintillating performance on Planet Normal. I mean, if I was running a tabloid, is that it would be a contender for the front page headline, focusing yeah. above all on the upgrade in benefits that's coming of over 3.1% yeah. when you've got 7.4% inflation, yeah. focusing on the inflation coming down the track and, frankly, focusing 
on whether or not the Chancellor really gets it, given who he is and where he's from in terms of his background. And I don't I don't generally get personal in my journalism and my writing, but opposition politicians certainly do. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Labour front bench didn't start attacking Sunak personally. I don't like that kind of politics, but I, I do see that coming down the track. Yeah, it's an obvious stick with which to beat him. I mean, Liam, just, just on that, your point about the central bankers not seeing inflation coming. And as you say, you and I have talked to businesses, but central bankers talk to businesses as well. They do, they do these surveys. How, how did they miss it? What were they thinking about? They do and they don't, in my experience. Right. So I've got a lot of respect for the Bank of England. I'm actually quite proud of the Bank of England. I'm proud of, it sounds schmaltzy, but I'm proud of a lot of our kind of economic policy-making establishment, the National Institute, the OPR. You know, we have some really good people in the UK and, you know, I, I know lots of them, as you can imagine. That's my job to talk mm. to them. And generally, the standard of discussion, the standard of debate and analysis we have is among the very best in the world. But of course, just as we operate, Ben, in a, in a sort of highly charged, semi-political environment, even as sort of teenage scribbler newspaper columnists, though neither of us are teenage anymore, the likes of the Bank of England, the likes of the OBR, the likes of the National Institute, they work in a highly child political environment as well. And they kind of talk to business, the Bank of England. They tend to have Bank of England agents who talk to business and then what the agents say. To, you know, there's sort of little layers of politics going on there. And I think in the end, it was just too difficult to deal with the idea that people like me were right and inflation was going to get a lot higher and interest rates would need to rise. And I think the fear of higher interest rates was not only because people could see, as you say, Ben, a lot of our public sector debt is index linked, as we say, linked mm -hmm. to inflation. So increases in interest rates would lead to higher debt payments as inflation rose. But also, and this holds across the state, it certainly holds across the Eurozone, perhaps to even greater extent than it does here in the UK. Central bankers, pretty much since the global financial crisis of 2008, have been petrified of raising rates for fear of upsetting bloated, massively overvalued financial markets yeah. in terms of both stocks and bonds. And this is a family show. We don't want to get too technical about this, but the general idea that I'm putting forward, and I'm sure that you would at least have some time for this idea, is that financial markets have been spooking central bankers for years. Do not dare to raise interest rates or we will crash the economy. Yeah, the so-called taper tantrums that they had in the States when Yellen tried to reverse quantitative easing and raise interest rates. She tried, didn't she? I think actually yeah. Janet Yellen was the best governor of the Fed that they've had since Paul Volcker in the 80s, who eventually squeezed inflation out of the system with a series of punitive and very painful interest rate rises that did drive America into recession, but did get rid of the really nasty inflation of, of the late 70s and the early 80s in America. Yellen tried to raise interest rates to squeeze out coming inflation, which she saw. She wrote about it a lot. This very much you know, piggybacked off her academic work that yeah. she'd done. And Trump removed her, saw her as a Democrat appointment. She was a Democrat appointment, but I don't think she was a stooge in any way. I think she was a very fine central banker. He put Jay Powell in who's there now, but then he started calling him a moron on Twitter when Jay Powell <laughs> said, actually, I think Janet Yellen was right. And now we've got Jay Powell 
Now, Trump's gone digging his heels in and saying, we are going to raise interest rates quite seriously in the States. The Bank of England will follow, and that will have an impact not just on the personal finances of people in the UK in debt, but also our government too. So to what extent do you think, Ben, that... What do you think of the political ramifications of this budget? This is slightly in a way fixed if you talking about this, but your excellent business columns, they're written in a political context. They often nod to politics and, of course, politics, which leads to policy, which feeds back into the economy and business. So I don't know. I, I think when this is, it always takes a while to digest these sort of fiscal events, so the budget and the spring statement, it always come, takes a, a couple of days before things settle and people decide what they think of it. My sense is that he's going to end up not having pleased anyone. (laughs) That's a good thought. (laughs) So, I mean, just because the tax cuts, as you say, I mean, that's a bit of red meat for the backbenchers, isn't it? And yet, as we've discussed, it's a bit smoke and mirrors. It's a bit cutting one tax here to offset another tax that he's raised. I mean, I think it's the OBR... I saw it on Twitter, so I can't remember the exact statistic, but I think it was the OBR that said essentially his tax cuts today offset a sixth of the rises that he's put in place since he became Chancellor in 2020. So he's not really cutting taxes, he's just reducing his tax hikes a little bit. So that's not going to please people. There's plenty in there, as as we say, for Labour to get their teeth into and to talk about the fact that he hasn't really helped people. Their big ask or demand going into this was a windfall tax on energy companies. I personally think that's a bad idea. I do think that it, you know energy companies have to manage through the cycle. And if you if you grab their profits at one point, then are you going to help them out when, when they make massive losses? It's worth remembering that BP is going to have to write down $25 billion because they're pulling out of Russia and their stake in Rosneft. And I do think we need the energy companies, A, investing in North Sea oil and gas and discovery, and also in other new forms of energy and renewables. So I think a windfall tax would have been a bad idea, but it's politically compelling. And he hasn't done a massive amount to to tackle the cost of living crisis. So I'm not sure there's going to be many people that are pleased with it. And then if you, if you think about the other big shadow hanging over this statement, he talked a lot at the beginning about Ukraine and the uncertainty that creates. There's no doubt that's true. But a couple of the things that are going to be demanded of him in the coming months are trying to sort out our energy mix and increasing spending on defence as well. And although he mentioned those things, he didn't really do anything to tackle them. I'm glad you mentioned the windfall tax. And instinctively, I agree with you that it's a bad idea. I don't like retrospective taxation. It offends my sense of natural justice that you can run a business and make money in a certain tax environment. And when you've actually made that money, retrospectively, the state can then change the rules and say, actually, you owe some of that money to us. I feel a buck coming on. A key, yeah, because a key (laughs) word that you used was compelling, politically compelling. I do think it's politically compelling. Ben, I've had several Tory ministers ring me up off the record and say, what do you think of a windfall tax? Could we get away with it, et cetera, et cetera. Not Treasury ministers, I should say, but ministers in other departments. And the reason is that I think there's a sense among our political class in general, an increasing sense, and certainly when I interviewed Kwasi Kwarteng last week, the business and energy secretary, he broke cover and said this on the record. There's a sense that the petrol retailers, often oil majors, they're often the same companies. 
they will deny this, but there's a sense that even when oil prices fall off, mm. petrol and diesel prices in the current environment keep going up. And you can plot graphs that show that. And indeed, I ran one of those graphs in my economic agenda column in the Telegraph last weekend. So it may be that the petrol may oil majors are pushing their luck a bit. And mm. it will be interesting to see the extent to which this 5B cut in fuel duty is actually passed on. <laughs> it might not be passed on at the pump yeah. because that's up to the companies, the extent to which if they're paying 5P less extra duty – on their balance sheet, will they give customers the full benefit of that 5p? A duty cut, which they can anyway obfuscate and say, oh, well, it's been totally overshadowed by an increase in the price of oil. And as we speak, oil has gone up from under 100, approaching 120 over the last week or so. So I do think the oil majors are on borrowed time. I totally accept what you say. I know you write a lot about the energy industry and know a great deal about it. They do pay a high rate of corporation tax. They do pay supplementary taxes and so on. But, you know, populist ideas become popular at certain <laughs> points. And this feels like one of those points. And more generally on business, I think there was almost nothing in this spring statement for business. So is that it for low income and vulnerable households? And is that it for business? When you think about it, Businesses are getting the increase in NI contributions for employers, but they're not getting the cut in the, the threshold. They very little on business rates, just a sort of reheated announcement on business rates for small people. No sign yet of that long-awaited Treasury review on business rates at a time when the Labour front bench is advocating a complete abolition of business rates, albeit they're not saying what they'll replace them with to raise the 25 billion quid or so, which business rates raise, and a corporation tax rise coming down the track, which is penciled in for next year. Yeah, exactly. And the tax is yet another input cost, isn't it? Yeah. So this is the all of these things are adding to the chances that companies are going to have to raise their prices and, and that all feeds into inflation. And that companies aren't going to be able, Ben, to raise wages in line with inflation. No. <laughs> so real wages will fall. And that's why I think you are going to get industrial strife and this dogfight between capital and labour that I mentioned. And of course, that kicks off the thing that the Bank of England fears the most, which is a wage inflation spiral. And that is back to the 70s, isn't it? When yeah. higher wages lead to higher prices, which lead to higher wages. They, and then you get that rise in inflationary expectations. Which is why Andrew Bailey the other day said that almost, well, said it was a pretty crass thing to say, that people shouldn't be asking for pay rises. Yeah, he was sort that of a worried. bloke paid half a million quid from the public purse every yeah, year. No, Not a good look. And I totally understand where he's coming from analytically. Yeah, it, it makes economic sense, but politically, politically looks, you know, he needs to do, to do his homework. Something else I wanted to say, Briefly, Ben, before we wrap up, and that is, again, on the politics of this, I wonder what you think of this. I actually think there's quite a lot of political vanity and gamesmanship in this statement. And I don't wish to attack the Chancellor personally. I've actually got a lot of respect for him. But I think he needs to be a bit less George Osborne, a bit less Gordon Brown in terms of how he conducts himself in public life. What do I mean by that? You know, what is the point in raising national insurance contributions by 1.25 percentage points now only to lower the basic rate of income tax 
But, but, but I mean, it's it's the grand old Duke of York, huge upheaval for people. He wanted to raise the 1.25 percentage points national insurance contribution because he said he would and he didn't want to lose political face. Yes, so I think that's exactly right. It feels a bit clever, clever, doesn't it? And then he wants to lower the basic rate of income tax so he can be anointed as leader when the Tories, if and when they win the next general election. Well, you can't play games with people like this at a time when people are literally worried. Can they heat their homes? Can they feed their family? Can they buy their kids shoes? And you've got a bloke who's you know a multi, multi-millionaire playing political games. Yeah, so he doesn't. He doesn't want a U-turn on the increase in national insurance contributions, but he had all the cover he needed to do so because he announced it back in September, I think it was. And it was a it was a different world back in September. <laughs> so he could very easily have said, "The OBR has said because of the Ukraine." I mean, he did say the OBR has pointed out the, the economic uncertainty because of the Ukraine crisis. With that in mind, I'm going to, you know, he could have just paused the increase. But he, as you say, he didn't want to do that because it would have looked like he would have lost face because so many people were calling for him to U-turn on it. And then, yes, he cuts income tax, but tellingly does it at the end of this parliament, 2024. So just in time for presumably the, the general election, which it does feel like he's playing politics with our finances and people need help now, not in 2024. Well, Ben Wright... Business columnist at The Telegraph, it's been great to have you on Planet Normal. I'm very grateful to you. I know Alison will be too. Your column will be in The Telegraph on Thursday, the day that Planet Normal is released. Great to have you aboard The Rocket once more, Ben Wright. Thanks for having me. Well, that was Ben Wright of The Telegraph, just one of the many superb writers we have at our newspaper and we're always delighted when they appear on Planet Normal. You can look back in our archive and we've heard from Mads Grant, who writes comment for us. We've heard from Con Cochlan, who is our distinguished defence editor. We've heard from Phil Johnson, who's been writing Leaders at the Telegraph probably since before I was at school. Sorry, Phil. I'm just going to read one email this week. So this is email of the week. Because Alison's not here, she will be back with us next week. And this one email is from Johnny, who's from the Yorkshire Dales. I have very much enjoyed listening to the podcast over the last year, says Johnny. I only wish I'd discovered it earlier. I had concerns from the beginning about many parts of the global COVID-19 response. Particularly worrying was the gaslighting and silencing of legitimate and sensible scientific views of those who opposed lockdowns, the likes of Jay Bhattacharya and Shunetra Gupta. And I also didn't like the promotion of the far-left sage nudgers. I felt, said Johnny, inspired to write a short poem, which I hope you'll enjoy. Many thanks, Liam and Alison, for all you have done. Best wishes, Johnny. So here's Johnny's poem. It's called Aboard the Rocket, marking the anniversary of lockdown, because, of course, the 23rd of March is the two-year anniversary of when Boris Johnson told us all to stay at home. And that's the date that we're recording this particular episode of Planet Normal. At first, we believed there was nothing to fear. Nought but a cold, born a long way from here. But then came Italy and scenes of unrest, our great British resolve to be put to the test. Who to trust, what to read, things were so unclear, especially when some seemed to enjoy spreading fear. Hancock in charge, what could go wrong? Ten grand and the slammer. For a mistake on a form, he almost had us wishing for Starmer. 
Hands, face, space, he did cry. Little did we know he was more than a little bit sly. The news speak exploded. The rules made no sense. Wear this cloth you can see through and don't touch your friends. But out of the darkness came a vessel, a home for the brave. A rocket of reason, don't be afraid. There's more to life than Covid, they announced with aplomb. So aboard I climbed, finally, at home, and with others like me, I no longer felt so alone. Well, Johnny, I think you have absolutely captured the essence of Planet Normal. Alison and I often say, and we mean it, that this podcast is only what it is because of our incredible listeners and the quite astonishing emails that you send us week in, week out. We read them all. Some of them are absolutely incredible. We read out many on the rocket. But Johnny, do send us an email to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with mug winner in the subject heading because you have won email of the week, which means you get one of those coveted rare as hen's teeth, rare as rocking horse poo planet normal mugs. Johnny, thank you for a wonderful poem and a fantastic email. That is it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. If you enjoy the podcast, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us so our family can grow. As we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other Until next week, it's goodbye from me and Alison will be with us next time. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.